Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. How anyone makes it in the film industry is always a bit of a mystery, but there are certain common denominators like hard work, self-confidence, and what Broadway and TV star Carla Renata calls a Teflon spirit. For her, another key element is having something outside of showbiz to keep you grounded. We talk about her superpower of changing minds in a room, her success as the curvy critic, and the progress and lack of progress with Black representation in Hollywood. We start by talking about her branded Curvy Critic signage in her office. Where did you get the little signs printed, the circles behind you? That is so cool. It's called, it's a company called Etched on Wood. So that's wood. It's like rose gold. It's a piece of wood that was painted with rose gold paint. Okay. That's awesome. It looks like metal. Yeah, it does, but it's not. (laughs) This is a little off, but like, I love that you invest in your brand to the point that you would do that like well yeah because what was happening was I had this is my office and I had Broadway posters all over the walls Mm -hmm. and what would happen when I would do interviews is that people always wanted to talk about my Broadway shows and it would Uh, eat up my interview time right so so I was like you're like look I know I'm amazing but can we please focus on yeah I mean I was like can we just talk about something else so I figured so if good. I I figured if I put the curvy critic up there that they could just see that in the pink and just be mesmerized by the pink and that would be it. <laughs> I love it. It's brilliant. <laughs> Carla Renata, thank you for joining me on Hearthside Salons. It's so good to have you. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Well, I wanted to share because I always love to share a connection. So I love I wanted to share that we met at a film independent brunch. Yeah. Because you had an amazing purse. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Star Wars coach bag. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. You know, you never know it's going to be a conversation starter. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. And that that bag actually was more of a conversation starter than not. I haven't, I literally probably haven't used that bag since that event because. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. You know, where, where are you going with the purse right now? Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's It's been interesting. It's just been interesting. And it's been like, um, I think when it first went down, when the pandemic first happened, I was almost relieved because I was tired. Mm. I had been running around, flying here, flying there, this film festival, that film festival, you know, this event, that event. It was award season. It was um, right about to be award season. Right. And I was just, I had, I, I think I had literally just come back from, did I have Sundance? I had just come back from Sundance. Sure. And I was exhausted. And so when it happened, I was like, oh, I get to catch up on some sleep thinking it was going to be a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. 15 months later. Well, I want to start because you've had such an interesting path. And I so I want to start by talking a little bit about your origins, your background. You grew up in North Carolina and Missouri, right? No. So I I, that's okay. Set me straight. (laughs) That's okay. I will. as I'm very known to do from time to time. I was born in North Carolina okay. um, and I grew up in Missouri um, off and on because my dad was in the military. Got so, it. So yeah. I had the right states, thank God. You had the right states. <laughs> what was your family's reaction with a military family? Like when you were like, I want to be on Broadway, parents, were they into they that idea? Care. They didn't care. Okay. They really didn't care. Um, they, they, they were not, 
as impressed about being on Broadway as I was. It was only when I started showing up on television, like in television commercials or on a TV show that they were like, you know, and yeah, they could have cared less. They could have cared so much less about me being on Broadway that literally my opening night on Broadway, I called my mom to see if she was coming. And my mother was like, yeah, I don't have anything to wear. I'm like, you do realize that this is only going to happen to me once in my life. I'm only going to open on Broadway for the first time, one time. It's only going to happen once. And she never, she, it never even crossed her mind. And then wow. she, you know, got it together and came. But I was like, really? Yeah. yeah, my family, my family could care less about me ever being in a Broadway show. It wasn't until I showed up on television that they actually paid attention. Hmm. <laughs> what show was that? Um, it, I wasn't, I did a lot of television commercials. I did commercials for like anything from like Crest to um, Sprint to, Folgers coffee like I they, at one point I think I had about seven or eight national commercials running at one time amazing so they they were used they they would freak out when my mother would be on the phone with me and one of my commercials would come on she would freak out or if I was sitting at my father's house watching tv and we would be watching some western or something with him and my commercial would come on in the middle of that programming they would lose their minds but it was only then that they were like, oh, and and they seemed to be under the impression that um, because I was on television doing commercials that I was making like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and I was not. <laughs> Amazing. Did what? But what Broadway show? What was your first Broadway show? The very first show that I booked that was currently running on Broadway when I booked it was a show called The Who's Tommy. And I booked the first oh, yeah. national. Yeah, I booked the first national tour of that. So when you book a first national tour of a show that's currently running on Broadway, you end up working with the same creative team that put it up on Broadway. And so Tommy had just won all these Tonys. It was like yes. the hot, it was like the Hamilton of its time. Yes. You know what I mean? It was it was the hottest show on Broadway. And so I I did that. And while I was doing um, Tommy, the same creative team was making plans to do a revival of how to succeed in business with Matthew Broderick. And so I auditioned for that and they took me out of Tommy and cast me in How to Succeed. So How to Succeed was my actual first show on Broadway, but the first time I worked with a Broadway creative team was Tommy. Okay. So your mom got it together that night, saw you and Tommy. And then and no, then she came, she she came. Well, she came, she came to see me and how to succeed. Tommy, did she come out on the road to see me? No, my mother didn't come out on the road to see me and Tommy. My dad came out on the road for Tommy. Um, because my father likes the who. Sure. <laughs> like who if you had told me that my Marine Corps daddy was like a fool for the who, I would have been like, you are totally lying. But he, my father is a huge fan of the who and um Pete Townsend, so he came to the yeah. opening night of Tommy. I think we opened in Dallas, Texas or something, I but he came it. for that and mommy came for how to succeed. I love it. And then, so then you, you're in this show and you, you're working with Matthew Broderick. That's kind of cool. It was cool. It was, I'm still in touch with or have some knowledge of where everybody in that production was because not only was Matthew Broderick in that company with me, but Megan Mullally was in that company oh. with me. She played opposite. She was uh, the romantic lead for Matthew in that show. Amazing. Um, yeah, it was it was a, it was really special for all of us because most of us in that show, it was either our first big Broadway show 
or the first time some of them had ever been a lead, you know, some of them had graduated from being in the ensemble or being right. in the study into a lead. So it was everybody associated with the production had some special reason why it was cool for them. Yeah. So that was, that was cool. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, I, I was a theater kid and, you know, never dreamed of Broadway, but never <laughs> ever got far enough to even get myself to New York to audition for anything there. So, I mean, just that alone, I just, I'm in, I, I'm in awe. I think that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. Years later, I actually worked in the advertising for Broadway. Okay. But, so I did, uh, when you were in Lion King, I was, I was doing the advertising for Lion King. I worked with the team that designed the posters. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and the logo and everything. So I did. yeah. I did the Lion King here. We did it for three years. I want to say three years. It ran at the Pantages for three years. Yeah. Yep. That was and, a great time too, because that was that was the first time I'd ever been in a theatrical production that was directed by a woman. So that was a really Julie big Taymor. deal to be directed by Julie Taymor. And it was also a big deal for me because it was the first time I was a lead in a, a Broadway production. And I got nominated for an NAACP Image, Image Award, Theater Amazing. Award, NAACP Theater Award, not Image Award. <laughs> wow. So were you Nala? No, I wasn't Nala. I was Shinzi. Um, Shinzi is, and nobody knows who that is. So Shinzi is the role that Whoopi Goldberg did the voice oh, for in the animated it. project. Okay. She was the no. hyena. Mm -hmm. that's a, well, that's a fun part. You get to have a lot of, uh, a lot of playfulness with that part. Yeah, it was fun. I had a good time. Awesome. Oh my God. So your, I mean, your resume is so between Smokey Joe's Cafe and We Will Rock You and Avenue Q and the whole rest, like I'm most impressed by We Will Rock You and getting to work with Queen. What was that like? Um, I didn't really get to work with Queen. I auditioned for them, but I was a replacement in We Will Rock You. So I auditioned for the original company they did not um, choose me to, to open the show, but the young lady who played the role of Killer Queen had to leave the production for a little bit. And so I stepped in for her while she was gone. So I never really got to go through rehearsals with them or anything like oh, that, okay. but I auditioned um, for them and auditioning for them was a little surreal because um, my audition song was Another One Bites the Dust. And that song That's is very hard to sing. It is a very hard song to sing because it's very rangy. It starts in the mm. basement and it goes up to the heavens. And that's for a guy. If you're a girl singing it, it's even lower. So the first part of it was really, really, really low, like almost baritone low. Mm. And because my voice kind of naturally lives there, it wasn't hard for me to sing that. And it wasn't hard for me to flip up to the higher part either because I knew how to do that. So what was interesting was Robert De Niro was the producer on that. And he was um, present in the auditions, not physically, but he could see us and we could only hear him. Hmm. So it was really weird to know that you were, audition <laughs> that you were auditioning with Robert De Niro and that um, you were auditioning for Queen because in the room was um, Roger who played the drums in Queen and um, Brian May, the guy with the big curly the hair. hair. So the two of them were in the room. And I remember I sang another one by the dust once and Brian requested that I sing it again. I sang it again. They couldn't get over the fact that I could consistently hit those low notes because they were hard. 
Yeah. And so literally Brian got up from the, the audition table and got behind the piano and started playing it. And I was like, what is happening right now? It was, that was really cool. Oh that was mad cool. And wow. then I was, my girlfriend got the, my girlfriend got a part in the ensemble and she invited me to opening night, which was in Vegas. So I was there opening night. So cool. Yeah. What made you then want leave Broadway and come here and make this switch jump to TV? Well, when I was on Broadway and how to succeed, there was a girl that came in for a little bit. Um, she took over for Megan when Megan left. And um, she had just come from LA and she was talking about pilot season and talking about how much money you could make in television and how much the casting directors out here at the time loved having theater people come in to audition and loved hiring us because of our work ethic. I'm like, I need to get to LA. So my sh I was in a show called The Life at the time and my show closed and, I, and there was nothing on the on the Broadway boards that mm. I could be in that was going to be a new show my mm. unemployment was going to run out you know at some point and I was like I gotta find something else to do so I thought let me go out to LA and I had a lot of money saved up from all those commercials that I had done so I was like oh let me let me go out to LA and see what's happening out in LA so I came out here and it was literally the worst pilot season on record for oh, no. black actors there were two pilots that there were only two pilots that they auditioned for, and one of the two is got got picked up. That show was The Parkers, and it starred Monique. But yeah, it was, and I thought, oh, wow. I thought this LA thing is it's a little different. But I was determined. I'm like, I'm not going back to New York. I haven't been on television yet, and so I stayed here. I went through. I probably went through a good three quarters of my savings in about six months because I was paying all of my bills here, right. all of my bills there. I had to have a car here and yep. all of the expenses that go along with that. I was like, oh no. Yep. And so I had to make a decision. I was either going to stay, stay here in LA and really um, go full throttle and go for whatever this was going to be, or I was going to go back to New York and, you know, take my chances. And I, I wasn't doing bad in New York. I did commercials and I did voiceovers. I was doing other mm -hmm. things other than being on Broadway. So it wasn't like, and you know, there was regional theater all over the place. So it wasn't like I couldn't go back to New York and, and not make a living and not be able to support myself. But I really wanted to see what the whole television, Hollywood, LA thing was. Yeah. And um, I think you, I, the you, very you first- took a, Sorry, I was say you took away your safety net. Yeah. So I just was like, okay, I just want to see what this is going to be. And what eventually ended up happening was the Lion King did auditions where they were going to put up a um, LA company and they were going to run it for as long as they could, but it ended up running three years. We were, they brought in the producers to replace us at the Pantages, but I was there from the time it opened till the time it closed. And I knew from being in New York that it was really easy to navigate doing a Broadway show at night and doing other stuff during the day. Mm -hmm. Not so much in LA. Because, really? No, because in New York, you can hop on the subway, hit, hit right. it here, hit it there, you know, and people in New York are used to dealing with actors that do other stuff at night, right? That sure. when you go work on a soap opera or a commercial or even a voiceover session, they know that you have to be out in time for your half hour at 7.30. Like it's a well-known fact. So you don't have to like you know, be on pins and needles wondering if you're going to get out or not. Here in LA, 
if you're not here sitting here with a show, a Broadway show that's going to sit here for a minute, you're doing regional theater. And in the regional theater productions, they don't have understudies. Oh. There's no understudies. So if, if, the, if the show is supposed to run from January to mid-March, from January to mid-March, whatever the schedule is for that show, you have to do it. There's no, there's no backup plan. Hmm. So if you miss a show, then the show is down for that night. You know what I mean? Um, and they're not very flexible out here in theater, in regional theater, when it comes to you um, having something else during the day that may conflict and, and vice versa. So it's a little more um, tricky to navigate that in Los Angeles than it was in New York, for, okay. for me, at least. I can't speak for everybody, but that was my experience. Right. Well, so tell me about Superstore. What was that like? Superstore was a blessing in disguise because I auditioned for, it was a one and done. I was, I went to audition for a role that was only supposed to be there one day. Like it was it, that was it. Mm. it I think I was female employee number one or number two or something like that. She, I, it, my character didn't even have a name. Oh no. And um, I went in and I did it and I was just grateful for that one day of work sure. and went on with my life. And then they called and said, can you come back? And then they kept calling and kept calling and they kept calling for five years. So yeah, that's what And happened. you eventually got a name and everything. And I eventually got a name. I, they <laughs> gave me a son and a husband at one point. I'm like, well, okay, Janet's got a life. <laughs> I love that. I see, uh, that's the thing that, you know, this is a crazy place and it's a crazy industry, but I love that if you show up and you do good work, people want to work with you. They want to find a way to keep you in their thing. And that's, that's a perfect example. It's so good. <laughs> so, and you also did Life in Pieces, uh, which one of our <laughs> alumni and, uh, and, and previous Hearthside Salon people, Liz Hara, wrote for that show. Okay. So yeah, I, I, did, have, I did one day of that. It was fun. She had some interesting things to say, and we can maybe like segue a little bit here into representation and stuff because Liz is a, a Japanese American writer and found herself in a writing room with being the only person of color and you know for you saying you came out and there were only two pilots that even featured black characters that year and yeah but know, that was 20 years ago yeah but like you know it's been this long slow march of like can we please have not white people at the center of everything for the love of god well, the problem is, is that white people are the center of everything. That's the problem. So yeah, yeah. white people are the center of everything. They're at the center of every studio. They're at the center of every writer's room. They're at the center of every show run, uh, every show that is run um, on television is mostly run by a middle-aged white male. So until people are that are not Caucasian get behind the scenes and, you know, make those changes in the writer's rooms with the producing, with the directing, even with line producing, even behind the camera and with sound and editing and all that, until that shift and change happens, we're not gonna see it in front of the camera. It's been slow and it's been incremental because the, the, the presence of people of color has been slow and incremental getting in those very lanes that I just mentioned. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it is what it is. And, um, you know, I was hopeful after, especially after what went down last year, I was hopeful that maybe things finally were going to shift and change, but they're not, and they haven't. And now that things are opening up, 
it's like business as usual. People are just reverting back to what was going on before the pandemic happened. I'm like, did y'all learn nothing in the last 15 months? But that's just me. No, it's not just you. It's absolutely <laughs> like I have some friends who are directors, female directors, and they're like, oh, I was just starting to get a toehold in this and that. And now everything's gone back to they're not getting the offers. The male directors are getting the offers you know, and so it's like, okay, we've yeah, got Yeah, I mean, it's like, they just forgot. It's like, they got selective amnesia. That's mm -hmm. that my favorite terminology. People get selective amnesia and they don't, they just don't want to um, acknowledge it. Now, what I can say is from an actress point of view, I literally have been seen for more pilots this pilot season than I have in the whole 20 some odd years I've lived in LA. I've gone in for 14 pilots. Wow. I didn't even know that there were that many pilots with black girls in them. I'm like, oh, okay. And most of the projects were projects that were either created by black women, starring black women, or um, written by black women. So that's you fantastic. Know, yeah, it's been pretty cool from that vantage point. Yeah, I mean, from a writing perspective, I it's really interesting to see, you know, I work with a lot of different writers. And when I see in their scripts, they'll say like, you know, the, the character breakdowns in the descriptions, and it'll be like, Joe, 30, tightly wound, Sarah, 25, you know, pretty and easy on the eyes. And then like, George, black. And I'm like, okay, they so- They really say easy on the eyes? They really oh, say oh, that? So, most ridiculous. And I, one of my, so my first thing is, please don't say a character is pretty or good looking. This is Hollywood. We will assume beautiful people get cast. We don't need you to tell us waste character times telling but us they they're, they're good looking. But you know, this is the thing. So the breakdowns are created by the casting directors. Yes. So the casting directors create the breakdowns and they create the breakdowns based on what is written in the, in script, the script to describe those characters. Right. So, so the, I'm the, trying to get writers to say, please give your characters some more meat to describe them than just they're pretty. And also, why was George the only one that you said was black? Like, why are we, so it's getting them out of the mindset that white is the default and I only need to call out race if it's not white. You know, it's just- Well, for a minute, um, there was something happening where they were just, they were doing all ethnicities. You would see a breakdown mm -hmm. and it was all ethnicities. Yeah. Like I remember, I specifically remember going in for a pilot that was um, created by Ariana Huffington and I remember that the character description for the character I was auditioning for, it said African-American, you know, 40s is what it said. But then I get to the audition for the for the test because I screen tested for it. And it's two African-American women and one Asian girl. And who do you think they gave the part to? It wasn't us. Mm. So you created a role for a black woman but then you turned around and you gave it to somebody Asian. Why did you even put in the description African-American? Like, what was the point? I went in for another pilot one time where, again, the character was written to be African-American and a white woman ended up playing it. Why? Because the white woman that ended up playing it was at the same agency of the creator of the show and the network. So it was a package deal. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there's there's stuff. It, it's like I try to explain to my mom because my mother gets. I had to stop telling my mother about my auditions and stuff right. because you know she would be she would be disheartened for me. Sure. I realized very quickly that me not getting a role, me not testing for a role, me not getting a callback for a role has 97 percent not to do with me. 
Absolutely. It has to do with outside entities that I have no control over. The only control that I have is walking into a room and giving my all. That's it. And having an opinion about who the character is and what world I create for her in the confines of those scenes or sides that they've given me. That's all the control that I have. That's it. And, and COVID has been even more challenging because my superpower is walking in a room and changing people's minds. Like I literally can walk into a room and charm a whole room full of people. And I know I can. It's really hard to do that on a self-tape where all you're allowed to do is say your name, your height, and where you're based. Right. You know, I would walk in the room and there would be this conversation that would happen because they would have my picture and resume in front of them. Mm -hmm. And they would look and they would see Tommy or they would see Smokey Joe's or the Lion King or whatever it was that they saw and be like, oh, you worked with so-and-so, so-and-so. And there'd be this whole conversation that took place before I even opened my mouth to act. Doing self-tapes does not make that possible. Right. So I had to find, I had to get creative <laughs> with the way I was doing the self-tapes. You know, I had to get creative just in the slate to 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 sure. give to give them a reason to keep watching because mm -hmm. I I watch um, I judge acting competitions all the time and I can tell you I can tell you straight up especially if it's a singing competition or if it's acting I I can tell within the first couple of lines whether or not I want to watch the rest sure. I can tell within the first page if I want to keep reading a script. Exactly. So it's just, it's the same premise. And so, you know, it, it's been very challenging from that vantage point. But what I will say is that it's not impossible. And this is this whole thing, this whole diversity inclusion fight, it's exactly that, a fight. You know, it, yeah. it, it is, um, it's disheartening and it's disappointing to have to constant, it's like that Janet Jackson song, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Mm. is annoying to have to constantly keep proving your worth yeah. time and time again and prove to people why you deserve mm -hmm. to be there, why you deserve a shot. Why can't you look at my script? Why can't I test for this role? You know what I mean? It's exhausting. It's mentally and physically exhausting. So you have to be strong and survival of the fittest to kind of, make it to the end because if you don't have if you don't have something outside of show business to navigate and occupy your time you can easily have a nervous breakdown and lose mm. a sense of self and lose your way and this yeah. and for me it's not worth it you know my mom is here with me so you know my mother keeps it real 100 365 days a year 24 hours a day like she will I will wake up and she'll be like what's happening with your hair I'm like really and good morning to you too <laughs> you know what I mean as much and as an as annoying as that is I'm really glad that she's here because she keeps it real she keeps me grounded because my mother my mother wouldn't care if I was a five-time academy award-winning actress my mother would still say you know what you could stand to lose about five pounds like she don't <laughs> care she does not care my family is that family they make up they could care less what I do for a living. They really don't care. They're like, you're Carla and so what? <laughs> we all need that. Yes, everybody should have one. <laughs> yeah, we all need the grounding and we all need that like thing to pull you out of because it is, it's like, you know, I've just been submitting my film to film festivals and, and you know, you just the rejection, you just get like, it's, it's, it can really mess with your head until you get somebody pull you back and go, 
this is just the silly showbiz thing. It's not like, yeah. come, you gotta come back have, over here. Yeah. In this business, you got to have a Teflon spirit. Mm-hmm. You have to have a Teflon spirit. You do, because you can't survive if you don't. Yeah. You can't get upset about every little thing. You can't get your panties twisted in a knot over every little, you know, jacked up thing that somebody says or does. And you have to realize that everybody, when they, by the time they get to you with whatever comment or action that they're doing, there was a whole life that preceded them confronting you. Mm. And that hardly any of it is their fault into why they react or say what they say. So that's true. It's yeah, it's good to remember. It says more about the person than about. Yeah, it's, it's, about it's not about it's not about you it re- in the big scheme yeah. of things. It's really not about you. Yeah. So then what drew you to the world of being a critic? Well, I have a college degree in broadcast journalism from Howard University. And so when I was in college, I actually wanted to be a television producer. I really wanted Mm. to work for ABC News really badly. And I eventually got a job, got a job offer to work at ABC News as a desk assistant. But when I saw how much they was trying to pay a desk assistant (laughs) and I saw how much money I was making singing and dancing and acting, I was like, deuces, I'm gonna go over here. (laughs) "Mm, I love journalism, but uh, no. So Fast forward to me being in LA, I was on, there was a, at one point I was on four different shows at the same time and that happened twice. But what also happened is that all four of those shows disappeared at the same time, like within a two week period. Oh and I was goodness. like, oh no, what am I going to do? Oh, yeah. Cause I, I had gotten, I was like puff, puff, my legs crossed, yeah. you know, eating, you get used to that, you know, eating bonbons and having cocktails. And I was used to, you know, having checks coming here, there and everywhere. And all of a sudden I wasn't getting any commercial auditions. There were no voiceover auditions coming through. I couldn't get arrested for a TV show. Like it wouldn't matter how fierce I thought I was at that audition. They were not trying to hire me. So I was like, ooh, I have to have a plan B. Oh, yep, my plan B is my degree. So I was like, ooh, what could I do? I took a social media course back when I didn't know what it was and it was Mm -hmm. really brand new. And the young lady teaching the course was like, you know, you should start a, a, a blog or a vlog. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And so she explained it to me. And I'm like, but what am, but what am I like, what am I going to talk about? I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. She was like, well, what do you like to do? I'm like, I love watching movies. She said, talk about that. And that was all she wrote. Because what I did was, seriously, because what I did was I went on the internet. I let my fingers do the walking and the talking, and I discovered, I wanted to see how many women were film critics, and I wanted to see how many women that were Black were film critics. I saw that there was less than 3% that were women out of Mm -hmm. 100. So you got a pie that's 100%. Out of that 100% pie, you got 3% that are women, and then you have less than 1% that are Black. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I can do this. Here's the space. I was like, I can do this and I can do it better than anybody else because I have been talking about movies my entire Mm. life. My mother would sit and watch movies with my brother and I on Sundays in St. Louis, Missouri. And my mother would know everything about a movie from the cinematography to the production design, to the directors, to the producers, to the stars. She would know how people were cast. Like she knew everything there was to know about a movie. And when we would be watching these movies with her, she would disseminate that information to us. So I was like, I I had been doing that my whole life. She would make a game out of us watching the Oscars to see her. She would have her own little trivia game going on with me and my brother. So I was like, I got this. So I 
had gone to college with someone who just happened to be the co-founder of a film critics organization. I talked to him about, you know, what I needed to do to navigate in that space and find out more about it. And he kind of pointed me on my way, cut to an LA Times article was done on me and about 13 other people in 2018. And after that, I haven't looked back. That was, it was an article about, I think it was like 14 underrepresented voices in film criticism is what it was called. And after that, I ended up being on Turner Classic Movies talking about films twice, which was, I don't even have enough words or adjectives to describe what that was because like I said, I watched old movies with my mom all the time. So to be sitting in my house and have Turner Classic Movies come on and sit and watch it with my mother as I'm introducing a film was surreal. Oh it was God. the best thing ever. Like nothing I do in my entire life is ever gonna top that moment right there. It was everything to me. And then I ended up, you know, being called in um, through Good Day LA and Fox 11 LA and KTLA and um, RogerEbert.com. And that's a whole nother thing. RogerEbert.com would uh, reach out to me to write op-eds for that site. That's a, that's a whole nother full circle moment because Roger Ebert is like the gold standard for film yeah. criticism, period, regardless of what gender you are, right? He's the dude, yeah. him and Leonard Malton, they were the ones. And so for me to be writing for Roger Ebert's site, and then yesterday to have a review that I wrote be published on the Roger Ebert site, I'm like, what is going on? It, it's, it's my life is when I talk about my life and the things that I've done, I can't even believe it happened. And it's my <laughs> life. I'm like, I know people hear me sometimes. They're like, she is making that up. I truly am not. <laughs> I love that. If I were to, if I were to do two quick scenes, like write the script of, of what you've been saying, I would do your mom sees you in the Folgers commercial when you're standing in the kitchen with her and is like amazed. And you're like, whatever. And then your mom sees you with you introducing a film on, T on TCM. It was like, ridiculous. And it happened twice. That. And then the second time I did it on TCM, I did it with Ben Mankiewicz. I was like, what, what, what? So yeah, so that's how I, end that, the, that was the long story. But the long story of how I got into film criticism is that, and, and I continue to navigate in it. And I love it. I love talking about film. I love writing about film. I think that a voice like mine is sorely needed because I can look, the thing about women in general, regardless of, of what ethnicity we are, is that we can go see a, a motion picture and have a completely different take on it than a middle-aged white dude. Like, it's mm -hmm. just gonna be different. Like, we can go see a movie like Queen Bees with legends in it like Anne Margaret and Loretta Devine and Jane Curtin and Ellen Burstyn and James Kahn. We can go see that and we can see the empathy and the heart of that movie. A guy will go see that and be like, this is dumb, this is stupid, why do we need to see this? Mm, yeah, women, well, I don't wanna to generalize totally, but in my experience, we tend to see uh, the internal stories, the emotional stories and the empathy in a different way. Yeah, even, we even see, um, <laughs> We even look at superhero movies differently. You know, like we can go see an Avenger movie and see the heart behind all the, the fast paced action mm. and CGI effects. We can see that. But a lot of times 
the guys will go see it and they'll be upset that there's not enough action, that there's not enough CGI. And they'll be like, but you forgot this part. And we just go and we just enjoy a film for what it is. I can see the blatant differences every single time. I would be on panels where I would be talking with other guys with um, guys on the panel. And it was so interesting to me to see their point of view of the film and my point of view of the film, like with, I think it was Ocean's 12, mm. where it was an all-female yes. cast. Almost every guy I know hated that movie. And I said, yep. the premise is the same. It's just with women. So what is it exactly that you hated? Because the premise is exactly the same. It's just a bunch of women doing the same thing that Matt Damon and George Clooney did. So what exactly is it that you don't like? I don't get it. Hmm. It's the and exact same premise, yeah. but with a whole cast full of women. So and are the they problem? ever going to fess up to, well, no. it just wasn't guys. No, they're not. They're not going to say it. They're not. They will never say it wasn't good because it was a cast full of women. They mm-hmm. nitpicked it to death and nobody ever said, you know, I could have done without an Ocean's film franchise film with with a bunch of women. I, I could have did without that they'll never say that and no one yeah. ever did but I just say all of that to prove my point that there's such a blatant difference yeah. and um I just think that you know I, I I'd love to I don't and as far as being a black female film critic I I don't want to be the only person in the room. I don't want to. I don't want to go to a junket or a virtual junket or a premiere or a screening and just see one of me there. I want to see a right. whole bunch of people. I want to see my Latina sisters. I want to see some Asian sisters. I want to see some sisters that are disabled. I want to see everybody. Nothing excited me more than going to the Sundance Film Festival press conference one year, and there were some sisters down in the front that were deaf. And they were talking and asking questions. And Robert Redford and them were like, what you want to know? I'm like, that's diversity. That's wonderful. That's inclusion. You know, yeah. I was, I'm, I'm about, I'm about inclusion for everybody, not anybody in particular, but just for, can we all just have a voice? Can we all just have an opinion? Yeah. That's all. I love that. It, it, it's, it's funny because it's the same thing that we're saying that, behind the camera in front of the camera and also just talking about the camera yeah there needs to be more of of everyone everywhere yeah even when it comes to female filmmakers like I think it's a a travesty and a shame that this was the first year since Catherine Bigelow won the Oscar for um Hurt Locker Hurt Locker thank you I I could see the H it was coming um for Hurt Locker we hadn't seen that until Chloe Zhao won for Nomadland why is that you know, in between, in between and before Catherine Bigelow and, and Chloe Zhao, we had Barbara Streisand, we had Ava DuVernay, we had all these other women and not for nothing, but 2020 was like a groundbreaking year in yes. terms of films with female directors or that were written by um, women. And none of those films were given an iota of a thought. It was annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were annoying. great films. Yeah. Annoying is one word for it. Yes. Yeah. I, was just, I, I just, I used the word annoying instead very of nice. other choice language. <laughs> well, I was speaking with another filmmaker earlier today about that. And we were specifically talking about Catherine Bigelow, like Oscar winner, amazing film, proving she can hang in a, in a boys, you know, traditionally a boys type of film as an action film and a war film. And was she flooded with directing offers after that Oscar? I'm like, what? No. Where? Where's? Where's Catherine right now? No, but you know what? They still they did the same thing with um, 
Yeah, they did the same thing with Steven. No, they did the same thing with Steven Spielberg when he directed The Color Purple. The Color Purple was nominated for something like somewhere between like 11 and 13 Oscars. They nominated everybody but him. They did the same thing to Ben Affleck where Argo got all mm -hmm. these nominations and I think it won Best Picture, but he didn't win. Yeah. He didn't even get nominated for Best Director. It's like, how do you do that? And it, it goes back to what I was saying before. When you have a body of people that have their thumb on your neck and not wanting to to open up the status quo that's what happens you see yeah. 25 and 30 years go by before you see someone get a chance or get a break or even be acknowledged that's what happens and yeah. and, and it's unfortunate that that goes down but I'm I remain hopeful that all of these things that we've talked about and all of the things that we've seen and we continue to see will um shift and challenge some of these people that are yeah. so afraid of having their authority or their place in the industry disturbed. It's not going to be disturbed. If anything, yeah. it opens it up to a whole new exciting possibility. Why can't you be open to that? Yeah. It's like the table's bigger than you thought it was. You don't have to, there's, there's room. It's not just the appetizer and a cocktail. It's the appetizer, the salad, the main course, the dessert and the aperitif. Let's go. Yeah. Yes, I would like to see that. And I and I was, you know, this this year's Oscars did seem a lot more like, oh, there are some people in the voting body that have figured it out. And yeah, you know. I mean, for the first time we saw makeup and hair be two black women. Yes. You know, usually yes. makeup and hair goes to some period piece. Yes. Which, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that. I love myself a good period piece, but can we just acknowledge some other stuff? Yes. We, uh, I talked uh, earlier in our season one with uh, Wanjiro Ingendu, who is in, she was just inducted into the Academy. So it was going to be her first year as a voting member of the body. And we're hopefully going to catch up with her now in, in a few more weeks to so like, okay, how was it? What, what, you know? It's a lot. It's a lot when you're, when you are in a, and I can speak because I belong to a numerous amount of film critic organizations. Mm. It's a lot um, to be a member of the voting body because the, the volume of projects that come your way that you have to look at, that you have to look at with a discerning eye and then make a decision and narrow down to what you think are the top five, that's a lot. It it's, is a lot. it's very, very, very time consuming. Mm -hmm. So you have to be someone that really loves what you do to sit down and give it that kind of time. I remember yeah. seeing, a, do you remember that article that showed up? I think it was either in, it was either in the Hollywood Reporter or Variety or The Wrap, one of the one of the three trades or deadline. I'm just gonna go mention them all. Sure. But there was an article that showed up where they did an interview, anonymous interviews with um, Academy board mm -hmm. members. And there was that one board member that said they could they were never going to vote for a film that has subtitles because they just couldn't be bothered to see <laughs> the subtitles i was like yeah yeah it's it's astonishing the level of like you're just cutting yourself off from so much art because you're lazy and the world has to look one way or you won't look at it but i was just like so a subtitle is going to stop you from watching a film was mortified. I'm like, whoever that person is, they need to have their membership revoked. That was mm. like mortifying to me. I'm like, did you really say that out loud? Did you, did you not forget? Did you forget you were on a microphone and somebody was recording you and writing a story? <laughs> Clear, Cause clearly you did.
And I think because I was raised the way I was raised, I'm a military kid. I was raised around all different types of people in all different types of situations. My gaze of the world and of people is very different. And because I've traveled the world and I've seen what people look like and how they behave in other countries other than my own, I just have a really hard time not, not understanding why people are so hesitant to um, embrace change. I just, yeah. I really just don't get it. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I understand. understand. I understand why, but I just don't get it. Yeah, it seems it seems sad and fear based to me. Oh, and I, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's like I feel bad that you're missing out on all this great stuff. Because I know, right? Yeah. Too bad. Too sad. <laughs> so what's a what's a film from last year that you loved? Oh God, what didn't I love? There were so many films. There was this one film that I really loved because it was just, and I don't know why this one film just sears my brain and is at the forefront of my mind, but there's this independent Nigerian woman film, filmmaker named Ekwa Masangi who had a film called Farewell Amour. And it was about this, um, this man who had to leave his country and came to America to try to make a better life for the family. And he left them over there and he came to New York. And then once things got a little better where he could you know, bring everybody over, he did. But in the middle of all of that, he established a whole new life here in America. He had a boo here in America. He was married over there, but his wife and his kid are coming. Like it was kind of messy, but mm. there was this one scene where, and it was all in subtitles, but there was this, not some of it was in subtitles, not all of it. When they were speaking in their native tongue, it was in mm. subtitles. But the thing that was hilarious was, it was so funny to me. And I don't, I always talk about this. And I know Equa is going to kill me and she gets so mad at me when I do. But there's this scene where his wife is coming and he snatches the sheets off his bed and he wraps them up and puts them like in a plastic bag and hides them in the linen closet, like in the back. And then from time to time, when there's nobody around to catch him, he pulls his bag out and he just like puts the bag up to his face and he smells these sheets because it has the, the other woman of, smell. Yes. And I'm like, oh, that is so trifling on so many levels. And it just, it makes me laugh, but it's mortifying all at the same time. But it just go, it speaks to the complexity, complexity of time does not heal everything. Like mm. time is what separated them. Time is what created the distance. Time is what has created him to pick up with somebody else. I'm not saying what he did is an excuse and I'm definitely not condoning what he did because that's not okay. But what I am saying is that it was interesting to watch that whole situation play out and be navigated by the entire family, his daughter included, because mm. ironically enough, he takes his daughter to the doctor at one point and the doctor happens to be the girl that he was dealing with. I'm telling oh, you. Oh dear. It was very soap opera-ish, but I was there for all of it. I was like, yes, but it, but it, I also had never seen this told from a, the vantage point of a Nigerian woman. Cause it was so like the stuff I'm talking about is very lighthearted and fluffy, the fluffy part of it, but it is a much deeper um, film than that. Those are just the parts that make me laugh. Cause I always gravitate toward the funny, but the thing about it is it talks about, you know, what, what that's like for somebody that has to leave their country and then come here and try to start all over again. And yeah. the dad 
you know what I mean? What that was, what that's like, what is it like when y'all get back together after not being together for such a long time, everybody shifted and changed and grown in different ways. And you're trying to pick up where you left off and it's virtually impossible. Yeah. But then you have the, the wife coming over to another country, trying to assimilate to what American women do over here mm. and our ways and what was happening in this country while trying to hold on to what she holds dear about being, you know, where she's from. Yeah. It was, it's a deep, deep, deep movie. And I was really upset that it didn't get more attention that it did. But what I was happy about was there was a film called Miss Juneteenth. Yep. Directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples that got a lot of attention. And I was really happy about that. Really happy about that. It's her first yeah. time out the gate. And so for her to get so much attention first time out is just really wonderful. She did a follow-up film that played, I forget which film festival it was, but she did a, a short film called Dorothea's Blues. Oh. Okay. Well, I love uh, Nicole Benari. So I was really excited to see yeah. something yeah. where she got to star in it. And, yes. um, and I'm a, a voter for the Independent Spirit Awards. So I got to see that. That was, that was a nominee this year. So I got to see that among among other yeah. things. And, I was yeah. glad to see that with Nicole too, because Nicole had played everybody's wife. Yeah. Or sidekick. <laughs> yeah. She played, she played Chadwick Boseman's wife in 42. Mm -hmm. She's been in a lot of movies where she was playing somebody's wife or sidekick or the second lead. So it was nice to see her shine and, and hold it down for once. And the young lady yeah. to play her daughter was great too. She was. Well, and, and the film you were talking about sounds a little like Americana, that, that book in the exploration of a Nigerian experience in America and, and then who stays longer and then how you go back and you're just, you don't fit anywhere because you- Right, it's different. To... It's a little different than Americana only because it deals with this whole vantage point of the, the marriage. Affair, the affair, yes, the marriage. yes. So it's, deal, it's dealing more sure. with the, the marriage point of view and it's dealing with the father and daughter point of view because the yes. father and daughter are having a moment as a result of all this stuff too. And then she wants to be a dancer and her mom's not having it. Her mother's like, you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor. So there's that whole, you know, Nigerian mindset. Uh, yeah. it, it feels like to me sometimes that the Nigerian mindset is very similar to the Asian mindset where they're like, look, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer and anything else is not acceptable. <laughs> but in black, black, um, the, in the black community is like that too. That's why my family didn't care. If I had been a doctor or a lawyer child, they would have never stopped talking about me. But because <laughs> I'm in the arts, they could care less. Oh my God, that's so funny. Well, so what, what's next for you? I have no idea. Awesome. I have no idea. I, I just take it one day at a time. And, you know, just if, if I've learned nothing else in the last 14, 15 months is to just enjoy the day that mm -hmm. I'm in. Cause when I close yes. my eyes at night, it's not a guarantee that I'm going to wake up to see the next day. It's not a guarantee that I'm going to be able to live out this day. So I just take it, you know, one moment and one second at a time. I try not to wise too far ahead. Wise words. One thing I did want to ask you about is your videos, your interviews that you do, and then like your, you know, red, the stuff I was watching before from the red carpet or stuff now when you're on Zoom with people, you're, you're, there's something that there's something about your approach that I would love to know. What's your secret sauce? Because people open up to you in such an authentic way. tell me that all the time. And I'm like, I don't see it because to me, I'm just running my mouth. <laughs> to 
me, I'm just having a conversation with somebody. But I think if I had to pinpoint it to something, I think what happens is I genuinely show an interest in their project in them and their work. I'm not in there asking, how did you come to this project? Where did you get this script? What was it like to work with so-and-so? Like I try to at any and all cost not to ask those questions because I can only imagine, I know for a fact that when they do these junkets, they're scheduled with, you know, three, four, three to four minutes or 10 minute increments at a time. Yeah. And they're doing this for eight hours in a day. Mm-hmm. Think about how many times in the course of a day mm-hmm. in those increments that they're asked that very, those questions. I oh, just, yeah. it's annoying. So I don't want to be that person. And I research, you know, I learned in college to, as, and as a journalism student to research. So I usually research and I usually try to find something that I have in common with them. Like my best, the best one I got was um, Bobby Carnival. I was interviewing him for that superhero movie that he did with Octavia Spencer and Melissa McCarthy. And I looked him up on IMDb and, you know, over to the side, if you've ever been on IMDb, if you look over to the side, it'll say you have five people in common with this person. Well, when I looked over there to that section of Bobby Carnival's IMDb, it said that we had over 10,000 people in common, which I thought was right, which I thought was hilarious. So I was like, I'm going to say this to him and see what his reaction is. And what did he say to me? He's like, oh, are we related? (laughs) (laughs) I loved that. I love that. And it just, if they're with me for three minutes, four minutes, whatever the time signature is, I want them to have fun with me for that little bit of time that that they're there. I don't want them to be afraid that I'm going to ask them something crazy or personal or you know, I don't want to be that person. I just want them to have fun because I'm having fun. So I want them to have fun with me. I love that. It's it's such a it's such a nice place to come from. And because what I get when I watch your stuff is that you don't come at people from like this fan perspective of like, oh, I'm just this lowly fan and you're this special star. You come at them as just like, yeah, we're because I'm an actor too. Yeah, I'm an actor too. And this is what I know. And I've worked with a lot of famous people, but I can tell you this, they go to the bathroom just like I do. There's no difference. (laughs) They got, they got to (laughs) eat just like I do. So there's no difference. And, and, and honestly, Heidi, I just genuinely like talking to people. I just, I'm, I'm curious about people. I'm curious about what makes them tick. I'm curious about what they like, what they don't like, how they're like, I'm just, I'm curious and I'm, innately curious by nature you're curious curiosity and confidence and openness and warmth are like that's that'll get you everywhere i guess so but yeah i just i i my, my uh, one of my friends is is super famous and i did a junket with her and i was really nervous because it's one thing to be somebody's friend yeah it's another to like you know be professional and interview them and not be kiki in and all that you know what i mean so i was a nervous wreck and then when i finished i was still kind of a nervous wreck and she reached out to me afterwards and was like oh my god that was the best interview i've ever done i was like Aww. get out and it made me feel it made me feel so great because she said, she said, you're really good at that. And she says, you're like very respectful and you, you like, you knew your stuff. Like you, I could tell that you actually had watched the project, that you'd actually seen it, that you, you knew the character's names. You weren't looking down at a piece of paper, grabbing for a name. And I was like, mm. no, cause I really liked the show. And she was like, yeah. So 
I, I just, I love talking to people and, and, and I love having those uh, conversations around what they're promoting at the time. I just want it to be fun. And, and I study a lot of people that have interviewed over the years. Like I watched the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey show every day, every day. And I still kind of pull up some clips on reruns on YouTube every once in a while. And the one thing I noticed, <laughs> Oprah used to always say she was imitating Barbara Walters. <laughs> I'm imitating Oprah. So <laughs> not a bad path. I'm imitating, no, because what Oprah would always do is, Oprah would do her journalistic duty and ask mm -hmm. what, you know, the viewers wanted to hear, but at some point, she'd be like, okay, now listen, and she would, you know, she would get real for a second, and I could appreciate that, and I, I love the way that there was a, an equal balance to her interview technique, you know, and I also watch um, Tamron Hall, and I watch Kelly and Ryan. I love watching Ryan Seacrest do interviews because he he has that same kind of thing where he talks to people where you think that he has known those people for a thousand years and he may have just met them in that moment, but you never feel there's never an awkwardness with him with people. And I don't know if that comes from his years of doing the E live on the red carpet stuff or what, but he just or doing his radio show. I'm not sure, but he just seems to have like I do in innate curiosity in regards to talking to people. I love it. Given how far you've come, all the Broadway stuff, all the TV stuff, and now all of this, fighting your way up in New York, fighting your way up here, what advice would you give your 13 year old self? Oh man, that it's not that serious. It is not that serious. It really is not. Just, you know, enjoy the ride. You only get one time to have it. There's no do-overs in life. Once this life is done, it's done. We can't, you know, be done with this life and go, oh, you know, I want to go back and just revisit this part. No, dude, once this is done, once this physical being is done, it is done. Yeah. So I'm going to do everything I want to do, eat everything I want to eat, say everything I want to say, and love and hug on everybody that I want to love and hug on while I have the opportunity and tell people how I feel while I'm here, you know, and not wait until they get in trouble or someone passes away or anything like that. If I, if someone runs across my mind, I will pick up a phone and call them. They don't have to call me back, but I want them to know that I thought about them. That is beautiful. And that is the perfect way to end. Yay. And I, cause I can see even just from your background, like you so just radiate that, like, Life, live life to the fullest and embrace everything. Oh yeah, I'm totally, <laughs> I'm totally that chick. I, I just, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm that person. <laughs> Next time on Hearth Side Salons, we talk with sportscaster and writer Ghazal Hassan on story, game structure, philosophy, and college radio. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well. <laughs>